Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. The morning after a rather impactful hearing, and I guess I should confess, I you know, two things that I appear to be wrong about, and I'm only going to spend a short amount of time on this, and, and I'm certainly not limiting it to two things. But number one, it uh, looks like the NRA is uh, is about to lose bigly on gun control legislation. I think uh, listeners of this podcast know that I have been hopeful, but uh, deeply skeptical and cynical about the ability of Washington to get any kind of legislation through. It's not perfect. It does not solve the problem, but it is a remedy. And for the first time in 30 years, they were able to put together a bipartisan majority. So um, remarkable. Uh, NRA is uh, all in against it. Um, I suppose one could be really cynical and think that we're engaging in this massive kabuki dance where everyone is doing what is in their interest. The uh, NRA knows it's you know it, that it has to be opposed, uh, although it knows that uh, that uh, the legislation could have been a lot worse. But okay, but it is it is positive, so I have to set aside my cynicism uh, once again. Number two, I really did underestimate how significant yesterday's hearing uh, was going to be. I really thought it was going to be kind of a parenthesis that we would hear things that we'd heard before. In fact, I think that yesterday's hearing packed up more of an emotional wallop than the predecessors. And for those of you that are subscribers, uh, my newsletter this morning is just jam-packed uh, with insights from our all-star team, I mean, Tim Miller, Mona Charon, Sarah Longwell, uh, Will Salatin, Bill Crystal, Amanda Carpenter. So I, I would refer you to that. But, you know, the, the top lines on all of this, you know, we were reminded of the importance of honor and decency. And that sometimes just doing your job is heroic, uh, just showing up and doing your job in the face of all of these threats. Uh, and, you know, number two, there are just smoking guns all around. And I was struck by this over and over again that even setting the insurrection aside for the moment, you know, there are tapes, actual effing tapes of Trump's role in a massive conspiracy to overthrow the election. And sometimes we get numbed about all of this because we've been living through it. And sometimes we've been numbed by the hair on fire rhetoric. But as I said last week, imagine if we were learning all of this now in, in real time. Also, as Brad Raffensperger's testimony reminded us, Trump's falsehoods about this election weren't, weren't just lies. They were easily and repeatedly refuted lies. They are absurd falsehoods that were, again, debunked quickly and again and again and again without much ambiguity. And yet the MAGA world folks continue to spew this stuff and people continue to believe it. And I guess my bottom line is, you know, Trump did this, you know, all of it, the pressure, the bullying, the threats. And we really got a glimpse yesterday of the human toll. And uh, in, in the newsletter today, uh, Sarah Longwell, Tim Miller and Mona Charon write very eloquently about all of this. You know what this deeply malevolent man did uh, when he brought the full weight of the American presidency to bear on low level officials trying to pressure them to violate their oaths and to smear innocent private citizens who are just trying to do their duty. And again, there was so much news that came out of this. Uh, Trump uh, was directly involved in the fraudulent elector plot. And of course, my fellow chief's head, Ron Johnson, long sigh here, uh, was really busted. Amanda Carpenter has a great piece on this, but the fact that uh, Ron Johnson's uh, aide, uh, apparently at one point on January 6th, uh, suggested that he was going to deliver fake fraudulent electors to Vice President uh, Pence, and Pence said, just don't do it. And Johnson's just all over the place. I mean, kind of like, I have no idea what I was doing. I did not know this. And uh, uh, yeah, th 
I, I, I think the technical term is a weak ass non-denial denial followed by a quasi confession. And in any case, but before we get into it and, and our, our guest today, and by the way, welcome back. Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, <laughs> the organization formerly known as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Hey, so you kind of rebranded, but you kept the fire, right? Yeah, we, we wanted to keep the name um, and the logo. We're all First Amendment free speech nerds at fire. Um, and so we were originally thinking that if we were going to expand beyond just our, our focus on campus so that we've had since 99, that we might rebrand as the Free Speech League, which for First Amendment nerds is actually the group that preceded the ACLU, like the, the group that, um, that not a lot of people uh-huh. have heard of. But, we, you know, we, every time we got through this conversation, we're like, you know what? Fire is just a better, more interesting, more memorable name. So let's just figure out a way to keep it. And just changing the E to end expression was a solution that was staring us right in the face. Okay, well, I want to get into this more in depth. But, you know, the, the fact that you are expanding your focus from the campus uh, seems to be desperately needed since the attacks on free speech have spilled over from the campus to the rest of society. I mean, I, I, I think what you're doing is you're tracking the assault on free expression that that seems to be, I mean, everywhere. And I, I again, I, I want to get back to this, but can, can I just play for you a, just a, a couple of sound bites from me? Well, actually, one sound bite from yesterday. I mean, there, there sure. were just so many. We could devote the entire podcast to doing this, to playing, you know, Shay Moss, who talks about how her life was destroyed, or her mother, yeah. who was singled out by the president of the United States and says she doesn't feel safe. But I want to play, you know, one of the things that surprised me was, you know, uh, this uh, Rusty Bowers, who is the Speaker of the Arizona House of Representatives. And uh, he, he was, I'll be honest about it, he wasn't really on my radar screen. And, it, you know, he was one of the unexpected stars of the hearing. And he talks about, just talks about duty and faith. And just play one little soundbite from, uh, from Rusty Bowers from yesterday. First of all, when the people, and in Arizona, I believe it's some 40 plus years earlier, the legislature had established the manner of electing our officials or the electors for the presidential race. Once it was given to the people, as in Bush v. Gore, illustrated by the Supreme Court, it becomes a fundamental right of the people. So as far as I was concerned, for someone to ask me in the I would call it a paucity. There was no no evidence being presented of any strength. Evidence can be hearsay evidence. It's still evidence, but it's still hearsay. But strong judicial quality evidence, anything that would say to me, you have a doubt, deny your oath. I will not do that. And on more than on more than one occasion throughout all this, that has been brought up. And it is a tenet of my faith that the Constitution is divinely inspired of my most basic foundational beliefs. And so for me to do that because somebody just asked me to is foreign to my very being. I I, I will not do it. So what struck me about that, Greg, was, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, democracy is at risk or the attack on norms or you know, nerdy allegiances to uh, constitutional principles. But there are these moments when you step back and you go, oh, my God, you know, thank thank goodness 
we should be so grateful for public servants with honor and decency. And as I mentioned before, you know, here's a guy who's deeply conservative, deeply religious, and explaining why he just wasn't going to go along with the lie. And, you know, unfortunately, he's very much an outlier now in the Republican Party. But, you know, these, these are, you know, when we talk about principles in the abstract, this is where it becomes tangible. This is where yeah. it actually matters. Yeah, Rusty reminds me of our mutual friend, David French. Yeah. You know, just a mm-hmm. deeply principled person. Uh, and it's kind of funny because, like, up until pretty recently, in the small L sense, it seemed like everybody was a liberal. Like, in the sense we believe in, you know, democratic norms. Like, so we, we agreed on, uh, on, on, on a, an awful lot. Um, and that's changed, both on the left uh, and, and the right, in, in, in the past 10 years. And it's kind of unusual. I was talking to someone last night. And realizing that um, as much as uh, Twitter may hate, you know, centrists, I, I, I think this is one of the first times in American history that, um, you know, free speech at the moment is more of a center value than it is on either uh, on either mm-hmm. fringes, which is really historically unusual. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I always say this. I'm a long term optimist about the, f- the future of free speech because free speech works really well uh, and it's absolutely necessary for a democratic society. It lets you know where your problems are. Um, but it, I am very nervous about, say, let's say the next five years. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I think things could go wronger <laughs> than they already well, have. Well, I, yeah, your, your, your last book was The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. And I understand that you're working on a new book about cancel culture, which, yep. again, deep breath, is a real thing. <laughs> right. And, and you know, I'm glad what you articulated is something that's really been bothering me because, you know, I remember there was a time when small L liberals supported free speech. And then there was this period in which uh, particularly when there was political correctness on campus, when there uh, when, when conservatives uh, embraced the idea of academic freedom. And and now all of that seems eroded. Yeah. And it, it feels like there's this pincer attack. Yep. From the authoritarian right and from the purest left on free speech. So it, it, it does feel right now as if free speech is more vulnerable than it's been, more vulnerable than, than any time that I can remember in my professional life. Yeah. No, no. It, it's I, I would say 2020 was the worst year I'd seen. But really? from 2020 until now, um, I, there are more professors uh, fired over a short period of time than I've seen in my entire career. How many? What are we talking about here? Uh, our latest data is just right around 700 attempts to get professors fired since 2015. And we started counting in 2015, by the way, because prior to 2014, I had never seen my career starts in 2001 within my own career, um, a tenured professor get fired for something that was clearly related to research or expression. I mean, a word Churchill got fired, but they based that on fairly real and, and, and extensive academic That's a flashback, Yeah. Yeah. So 2014, and and that first case, by the way, was a professor at Kansas State University who, after the Newtown shooting, said, may it be your kids next time NRA. Um, and they, they went after him. And uh, the it's been, it just seems to get gotten worse most years. I think it actually stayed about the same, the, the number of professors targeted. We just did a big jump up uh, about 100 um, 
or, or maybe 90 new examples. We were around you know, 6, 610 uh, only a couple of weeks ago. But partially because Turning Point USA um, has gone from simply naming professors that they think are too lefty, but then giving you know contact information about how to get them, you know, how to get them in trouble. I'm like, but that that's a cancellation attempt. You know, like 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 that that's attempting to get to to get rid of somebody. So um, we th- that 700 in- include both attacks from the right and the left. And the maddening thing about this is that you know I'm, I'm also a constitutional history free speech mm-hmm. nerd going all the way back to the founding. This is historic. You know, hundreds of professors fired over a brief period of time. Uh, from my reading for the second Red Scare, you know, the estimates are, you know, maybe 100 to 150 professors fired during the second Red Scare. So this is historic, and you still have people trying to gaslight you, saying this isn't happening at all. We're going to be studying what happened in America in, uh, in a variety of ways, but also re- relating to freedom of speech in 50 years. Um, but the idea that you still have people saying this, this isn't a real thing, even though it pops up in all the polling, even though uh, there's different ways you can prove things, you can cite authority. Authority has been saying this is a problem for a long time, and, and those numbers have grown. You know, you ask professors, you ask average American citizens, do they feel like they could get fired for their point of view? It's been higher than you know I've ever seen in the polling. So, you know, I'm working on this book called Canceling the American Mind, which is as a follow-up to coddling. I joke that I'm stuck with gerunding of the American mind, so I might as well just, you know, <laughs> I might as well just stick with it. And one of the reasons why we're calling it cancel culture, which is not a term I've ever particularly loved, um, but when we looked at the data about America, about what Americans think of cancel culture, white, black, left, right, they know the term cancel culture. Uh, they're afraid of losing their jobs. Um, okay, yeah, and, d- d- define, define cancel culture for me before we move on. Just can you define it? Because we're going to get a lot of blowback saying, you know, in any time you use words sure. like woke or cancel, what do you mean by cancel culture? Yeah, my definition of cancel culture that I talked about at the Daily Beast in a long piece I did with Comey Frey, who's our, who's our top researcher for, for uh, attempts to get professors fired, um, was pretty simple but also a historical one. Uh, sometime around uh, a, a major uptick around 2014 of successful attempts to get people fired for what would have otherwise been constitutionally protected speech. Now, I explained that very simply, and I have some people saying, you know, well, the, the following things would be, you know, unprotected, and you certainly you could be fired for that. And my answer is, okay, if you want the really technical one, <laughs> the answer is, but by constitutionally protected speech, I'm saying under the 1960s Pickering decision yeah. <laughs> um, that, that said you're allowed to have, uh, you, you know, free speech rights as a citizen. So that's been my definition. And I try to make it historic because I do think this is closely tied to the ability of people, because people have always tried to get people fired for their point of view. They just couldn't get a ferocious, you know, social media mob together before there was social media. Right. So, you know, you say that you are concerned uh, short term, but you are optimistic long term. And I certainly do not want to. I don't want to kill the optimistic buzz, but but I, but I want to talk about that. Sure. And, and to be clear, I, I'm half Russian, so like my even my optimism is fairly pessimistic. <laughs> All right, we have the Greg Lukianoff, the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, which used to be you know focused on education. But given the fact that we're not just talking about firing professors anymore, are we? I mean this this seems to be part of our culture. Where and there's so many different aspects I want to talk about with you about all of this, including why this is happening now. And mm-hmm. what what I'm noticing is, and you've written about this in the coddling of the American mind, 
there is this belief among a lot of people that uh, that we that individuals should be protected from speech that offends them or hurts them. The conflation of speech with violence. Uh, that if people are hurt by ideas or words that, well, we ought to take uh, action about this. That, yes, uh, speech should be free, and you've heard this over and over again. Speech should be free, except speech that makes people feel unsafe or that makes people, uh, you know, fearful, whatever. So, or, uh, again, or speech that is hate speech. So what, give me some sense about why this is happening, why there is this, where do these ideas come from? that a university, which mm-hmm. used to be a place where, you know, ideas were vigorously exchanged, should be a safe space, or or that ideas posed a threat. Yeah, so if you look back at the, you know, the history of higher education, you know, it's ups and downs. Prior to 1940, there wasn't even a serious conception of academic freedom that was right. accepted. The AUP talked a good game on it in 1915, the American Association of University Professors, but, but the tenure protections didn't get passed until much later. Then, of course, you have, you know, going up to the uh, McCarthy period, and there was starting to, both in American society and in American law, you start having an improvement in the state of First Amendment law in the late 50s, after the McCarthy fever had passed, and an improvement in an idea of free speech culture. And that culminated on campus with the beginning of the campus free speech movement in 64, And by 1974, you actually had some really strongly favorable um, free speech opinions in the Supreme Court favoring even uh, student speech, which was, you know, an impressive change. Already by 1980, though, you start having people like Richard Delgado, um, you know, proposing that actually the more enlightened society would would uh, restrict speech that could be found to be uh, sexist or racist. So this was the 80s is when um, sort of uh, the, the. uh, purest idea of freedom of speech, you know, that maybe existed for all of a decade on campus. Well, that's, that's right. Yeah. So it started to started to flip in the 80s. However, the people who were opposing the speech code movement off campus included liberals, included conservatives, included most of the media, included comedians. But over time, this idea of, you know, we can limit speech uh, if we practice enlightened censorship never went away. And the, and the people who really believed in it the most were the administrators themselves. But here's one of the problems. And my, my, my co-author, Jonathan Haidt, has a whole organization called Heterodox Academy that's trying to improve viewpoint diversity on campus because you get really unfortunate results if you don't actually know anybody who doesn't think like you. So I think after decades of particularly the administrations of schools leaning more consistently to the left and the professoriate, it's gotten worse, you know, uh, within the past even couple of years, but also within the past few decades, that once you're actually go, go from being a minority opinion to being the majority, that's pretty normal for people to start becoming more free speech skeptical because it interferes with with, with what they what they can say or do. So in some ways, it's it's partially the curse of becoming hegemonic, be, developing power. But when it comes to uh, why right now, um, once again, and it's an answer that Height and I come back to a lot, but we, we think that the major change was social media. We we think that 2014 you know, ex, uh, exploded in particular because we saw a lot of people who grew up with this frankly, kind of absolutely awful social media environment for um, uh, saying anything controversial and sort of brought those attitudes and those practices with them 
to uh, to higher education. And suddenly, you know, letters that could have just been uh, th- thrown out or ignored, when they result in a you know a social media mob demanding you fire that professor or that vice president of marketing or that journalist, suddenly those people uh, could actually whip up a crowd like never before. So I think we're I, I, the, what I like in the situation we're to right now is it's as if we're looking at the printing press from the point of view of the year 1521. Hmm. Um, so like, and this is when Henry VIII started clamping down on, mm-hmm. on the printing press, because from, from the point of view of 1521, it led to a great deal of social upheaval. It led to religious wars. It led to blasphemy. It led to an increase in the witch trials. You know, from that point of view, the printing press wasn't worth it. I feel like we're in a stage where suddenly we've added billions of people to the conversation, able to talk directly to them. That's going to have to be highly disruptive. I, but for the long-term optimism, when you suddenly introduce this many people into a conversation, eventually my hope is that we can make something much more productive as opposed to something as destructive as what's, what social media has, has wrought in recent years. Okay, so in your description, though, and you, you're focusing on on uh, colleges and academic yes. freedom, you're talking about we didn't really have a concept until 1940. So this is this is one of my takeaways from from this is that you pull the lens back uh, a moment and you realize that respect for free speech, you know, was about five minutes old and lasted <laughs> yes. for about five minutes, and yep. that perhaps in the great, you know, the the norm of all of civilization, including much of the history of this country, has yep. really not embraced um, a, a, you know, a, a, an expansive view of free speech, that, that really free speech is very much a, not just delicate, but a little abnormal in terms oh, of yeah. history. Well, I call my blog the eternally radical idea because, you know, and it's a reference to free speech because my theory is that, you know, you, you know, it's a radical idea because in every generation, brave people stand up to oppose freedom of speech. Um, and usually freedom of speech is is on the losing side. Now, I will say the rise of democracies necessitated, you know, some amount, or, or, or democratic republics necessitated some amount of freedom of speech. So you had, you know, folk traditions protecting freedom of speech that, um, you, you know, in the early 19th century, the First Amendment didn't mean almost anything at all. But there was a great book called The People's Darling Privilege by Michael Kent Curtis that talks about the thing that kept the South from passing anti-abolitionist speech laws in the North was not that they thought they couldn't do it. It was because of a popular understanding that would be restricting the rights of people in the North. But yeah, it, it, free speech is mostly on the losing side of this. And I think that for people you know, around our age, we could kind of take for granted the idea that free speech culture that we had norms that basically meant, you know, people are entitled to their opinion, being the being the simplest idiom that, it, that that expresses it. But also, the law, you know, had been improving pretty much since the since a really bad decision called Dennis in the early 1950s. Pretty much from that point on, it, free speech law ha, has been improving. But it is fragile. It is something that's always going to be controversial. There's no way to do it. That's not going to mean that some people are are offended or hurt, you know, um, uh, qu- quite a bit. And as we get away from some of the norms of, you know, what, what, what people call a culture of dignity, the idea that sort of like everyone's an equal democratic citizen, but that means you also, you know, you, you promote norms like sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. As we get further away from that, it's it was completely predictable and predicted that you'd start seeing, you know, a, a, a disenchantment with freedom of speech. 
But as we're seeing what it looks like for people's career trajectories, um, I, I, I do think, I hope that we're reaching a stage where enough Americans are like, do I really have to like just completely shut up about my opinions um, about everything from now on if I, if I want to keep my job? I don't, I don't think that's, that's one of well, the reasons why a big part of our expansion is doing a massive sort of like public service announcement campaign on, on free speech norms. So let, let's 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 make this a little bit more difficult. Sure, sure. Because okay, you and I understand what the First Amendment means, but it's important to point out, and yep. and th- this is where a lot of the and I obviously your expansion you're recognizing this, the First Amendment does not apply to the private sector. So, for right. example, companies, employers have the right. Or let me ask you, do they have the right to fire employees for the in, engaging in free speech or speech that might be controversial or offensive? They do in terms of, you know, their rights as corporations. Our point with the free speech culture idea, and I did this um, debate with Ken White in Reason Magazine, where I think I got to lay lay out Mm -hmm. what my argument was, uh, the the best Mm -hmm. that I've laid it out, is that eventually if every, uh, because, you know, you have the Freedom Association to form a company that is both a widget factory and has a political, a strong political identity. But when you start thinking in terms of what if every company is like that? What if every company has decided that they're, in, you know, they're either you're, this is a lefty company or a cons- or, or a righty company, and anybody who publicly disagrees with us is going to get fired? That's something that those corporations can do, but that's not good. Uh, that's not healthy for a democracy. So one of the reasons why we talk about free speech culture, you know, and I think people right. should be you know, corporations should be welcoming this because there's a lot of movement, particularly on the right, to do top-down solutions to this. You know, to, to take over social media and try to quote unquote fix it. What we're saying or, is, or to punish companies for retaliate against companies for engaging in free speech. Exactly. So what we're trying to what trying to do is put a thumb sort of back on the scale for the idea of like all things being equal. I think it's probably better if fewer people get fired for stating their honest, authentic political opinions. Well, I mean, what you're describing, though, is is moving from concepts, you know, legal, the legal definition of free speech under the First Amendment and academic freedom to a culture of free speech, which requires people to tolerate speech they may not like, and then to restrain themselves yep. from enforcing those views on others. Now, that that strikes me as even more difficult in some ways. Absolutely. Because because with the First Amendment, you at least can go to court and say, well, yeah. this is what the law is, or academic freedom, you can point out, you know, contractual obligations. But the culture is basically to say, okay, you know, you don't have a right not to be offended, or diversity, obviously also means or ought to mean diversity of ideas, which is, I have to tell you, a vanishingly rare understanding in some circles where people really have internalized the idea that if they read or hear something they don't like, that they should do something about it to stop yeah. it or shut it down. And, well, and, that, you know, that, and that strikes me as a taller mountain to climb. Absolutely. And that's why, so we're doing this $75 million expansion over three years. You know, we're, we're like an $18, $19 million organization just focused on campus. But we, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person myself, but I, I do talk about how the organization, we all felt kind of called to the idea of, of, of expanding beyond uh, campus and unapologetically explaining, like, listen, there are, there's free speech law, but free speech law can't do it all by itself. You have to have these norms or the law is just not going to mean all that much. And that was the source of my debate with Ken was essentially, I think free speech culture is ultimately, particularly over the long run, more important than free speech law because free speech culture is what creates the law. Uh, and if free speech culture 
culture completely erodes, that all the norms, you know, think that people should be punished for ever offending anybody, the law is eventually going to suffer as well. And so I give historical parallels, you know, like what is free speech law without free speech culture? Um, it's the old Soviet Union, which had promises of freedom of speech. It's the it's North Korea. I think um, or I think maybe Iran like has promises of freedom of speech. <laughs> yeah, it's really? one of these things where right. it's just laughable. Like it, it doesn't mean anything. But free speech culture without free speech law, a good example of that is Enlightenment France, because Voltaire, Rousseau, Condorcet, all of these great thinkers, they got in trouble for um, they, 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 some of them w- w- went to jail. Some of them were threatened with going to jail for, 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 for their writings and for their, for their opinions. But at the same time, Enlightenment France, because even though the law wasn't on their side, there was a cultural norm of hearing people out, of engaging in philosophy, of having discussions. And I think the world is better for those thinkers um, having a free speech culture, even if the law took a t- long time to catch up. Okay, so um, in, in, the, in the spirit of making this conversation more difficult, I want to just change a focus and ask you a series of questions. Okay, we're talking about free speech in in the abstract. I'm thinking of things that that can get you canceled. Yeah. Um, and and for people who hate the phrase "both sides," uh, I am sorry. Um, this is coming from both sides, and yeah. we can we can illustrate this. So there is, and again, we're moving off of of university campuses because that's part of your focus. But yeah. So, so someone writes a book or gives a speech or puts out a tweet saying the evidence is overwhelming that uh, that African-Americans are genetically mentally inferior to white people. Is that free speech or would um, and, and should either academic freedom and or the culture of free speech tolerate that? See, I told you it was going to make it more difficult. Sure. Yeah. And, and when it comes to those kind of issues, you know, that that's that's some of the most radioactive stuff. And I will say that, you know, working in, uh, at fire for 21 <laughs> years now, it's amazing how much more popular <laughs> the speech that can get you in trouble on campus would be than, than the scenario you just gave. So is that kind of speech protected? Yes. Uh, Charles Murray, you know, wrote a book making this argument for encounter books. He wasn't arrested, nor should he be. If he was a professor and he got fired for it, he'd have a very strong free speech First Amendment claim. Now, the thing about culture, though, is that it's not, uh, and this is one of the things that, that, that drives Ken crazy, is one, you know, people are hypocrites. And I, I'm somewhat more sort of like resigned to the fact that people are free speech hypocrites in a lot of cases. So sometimes people who are, argue free speech culture are arguing it only, you know, uh, tactically when it when it's someone they like getting in trouble, uh, but right, not right. when someone they, they don't like. Um, when it comes to free speech culture, it can't be the same kind of cut and dry norms. You know, cut and dry norms are law, <laughs> but a thumb on the scale for it's better to know what people really think okay. um, is, is essentially what we're trying to bring to the discussion. All right. Now, does so, does yeah. that mean that people can't be fired for embarrassing their companies? Of course not. Uh, however, that being said, if, if you don't actually embrace some amount of voluntary free speech culture, my fear is that whether it's right or left, you're going to start having some of these norms imposed in a really clumsy way from from above. So I have I have written down some of these questions and I will tell you, Greg, you know, even though that you and I are, you know, in a pretty safe space for ha- having this kind of conversation, I actually am hesitant to read some of these questions (laughs) because because I know even in the bulwark world, there will be people who will cancel their subscriptions because I say, I'm asking this question is saying, is this free speech? So, I mean, this is again, kind of illustrating the problem we have here. So the first one I asked was the, and I'm sorry to say Charles Murray question about that. 
What about someone who says you cannot be a woman if you have a penis? Uh, you know. <laughs> and, and, okay, and, here it comes. Yeah, and that has been one of the things that in the last five years it has been one of the most radioactive topics is anything related to transgender. Um, and I've and honestly, I've never seen anything like it. I. I completely agree with that yeah in my career because like as far as you know like uh, fire is a, a great organization because we have people who actually vote for different people working in the same office you know um and i mean mainstream candidates not just you know like when i worked at the aclu it was democrats and the green party um we actually try to have people who are republicans and democrats um you know uh, working side by side. Uh, and the, the most radioactive topic that used to come into us was always, actually, take a guess. What do, you, what do you think the most radioactive topic we would hit before transgender became? Uh, oh, boy. I, you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm blanking. Israel-Palestine. Okay. Um, I, you know what? I That that one was, that was low-hanging fruit. Yeah, well, no, no, no. no. It, 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 as soon as I say it, I knew it would be clear. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's the ones where we're kind of like, oh, this one's going to be fun because everyone's so reasonable. And of course, we've defended, you know, everybody on every possible position on, on, on things related to Israel-Palestine. It was only around, goodness, like what, 2014, 2015, that you really started seeing transgenderism become the, you know, the new kind of like a third rail. Um, I, and I, it's interesting because, you know, when it comes to things like, can you make someone use someone's preferred pronouns? Uh, there's already been some case law on I this know. and the answer yeah. so far is no, because mm -hmm. there's a very strong presumption against compelled speech. However, can you say that, you know, maybe professors should have professional norms that say they should respect what students want? That's probably their strongest argument. When it comes to just regular citizens, can you force them to call someone something that they don't want to call somebody? No, because there's a specially strong presumption against compelled speech. And, and frankly, the, there, there should be. I think that at the moment, the discussion around uh, transgenderism is starting to break open a little bit. Like I, I see people saying things that I think would have gotten them fired even a year ago and actually ha trying to have some discussion around it. But I, I don't think the current level of sort of the number of new taboos seem to be created just in the last five years. I don't think it's sustainable for, for a democratic society. So there's going to be more litigation, I'm sure, or, or around a lot, a lot of these issues. Well, and, but and one, debate, but, one, yeah. but one, one thing that I really do want to stress is, is that we've, I, I think we have an incorrect conception of freedom of speech, even among its supporters. They like the marketplace of ideas metaphor, whereas I prefer the lab and the looking glass, which is my own goofy term for. It, trying to get some alliteration in there, um, but re really just saying that it's valuable to know what people think, full stop. Yeah, uh, but then the question is whether you still want to associate with them. I mean, that oh, would sure, be the argument. Yeah. So a company might say, all right, well, now we know what you think, um, and we don't want to hang with you anymore. Um, you're fired. Yep. And I mean, can I, they do that? Yeah. yeah. But like I said, it, it's a, it's a cultural, uh, it's a cultural thumb on the scale. Um, like I said, that it's not sustainable to have a situation where, you know, in order to have a job, um, you have to keep all of your political opinions right. to yourself. Well, you know, one of the interesting things, and I, I have to admit, one of the things that shocked me, and I'm, 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 I'm surprised that I'm able to be shocked by any of this, was the reaction of booksellers and people in the library community. Yeah. 
who rush to censor or block books, um, particularly on this transgender issue that they did not like. And, and, you know, some of these organizations that have whole websites devoted to, you know, burn books week and, and things like that had no problem. And I guess that that's also part of the culture because no bookstore is required um, under yeah. the law to to sell a certain book. So this is a matter of their individual, cho- edit, you know, editing choice. But when we talk about the culture, yeah, and and how targeted it was. So you know, one of the things listening to you and and this, I I, I go back uh, a, a long way in watching what's been happening to other free speech organizations like the ACLU, and I get the sense that you may be taking on fights that were once the ACLU's uh, turf. Um, they have uh, they have been there's been a bit of mission drift with the ACLU. And by the way, I, I should mention a couple things. When when I was a kid growing up, speaking of nerds. When I was a kid growing up, <laughs> my father was actually the executive director of the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union. Oh, and, that's great. Uh, no, no. So we grew up, but also he was one of those who uh, drifted away from the organization because the organization drifted away from free speech and, you know, decided it was going to be come involved in many, many, many issues. So this is a long-standing concern where the one organization that for years had been the bulwark of free speech decided to go off in a different direction. So so talk about this, because I remember, you know, you know, when they defended the Nazis in the 70s marching through Skokie, Illinois, I mean, I thought this was this was, you know, an indication that you were going to stand for free speech, you know, under the most extreme circumstances. But they've morphed, haven't they? Yeah. So talk it, to me it, about the ACLU and your relationship to them. You know, it always puts us in a somewhat difficult situation because, you know, like we, we don't want to badmouth the ACLU. Uh, FIRE has worked with the ACLU, particularly the state affiliate since we were founded back in 99. We've done lawsuits together with them. You know, I worked at the ACLU back in 1999 when I was still mm-hmm. in law school. Nadine Strassen is someone I co-author with, the former president of the ACLU. We co-author stuff all the time. Ira Glasser, who's the former executive director mm-hmm. of the ACLU, is on our board of advisors. Um, so we're happy to continue to work with them in the future. Um, and we're, we are sure that we will. We actually want them to send their you know free speech cases that they can't take our way. Uh, but some of the things that we are trying to do differently than the ACLU is, one, the 19 issue areas that that, that, that um, the ACLU have means that there's the groups within the ACLU that see each other in tension. I don't necessarily think they are. I, this was something that was happening back when I was, you know, interning there in 99. There was claims that we can't both support the right of abortion protesters um, because we are you know, we are pro-choice. And to, to people like me and, and um, James Weinstein out of Arizona State University School of Law, we're like, no, actually, you, you really can do both. Um, but it does create this kind of constant tension. So FIRE, uh, as we extend, uh, extend off campus, we're just going to have one cause, and that's freedom of speech. Another thing that we're going to try to do is when I interned there, um, I think that the lack of sort of political diversity within the organization w- w- was unhealthy. I think that, uh, you know, my, my Republican uh, um, and religious executive director helps keep the rest of us honest, you know, like, like th- th- that, um, th- that I think that that kind of diversity, uh, having that kind of internal diversity really helps. And the biggest difference, you know, we've talked about is, is this idea of free speech culture, that essentially free speech law by itself is, um, is it, you know, it's, it's not even going to survive forever if there's if there isn't a, a, a cultural commitment. But when it comes to some of the stuff that we've seen, you know, and this is related to, and I know people hate the term, but I, 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 I've accepted it now, uh, cancel culture, you know, 
after Coddling the American Mind came out, people from corporations, um, both for-profit and, and non-profit, started coming to me in height saying, we're dysfunctional now. Um, and th the first time I heard about this was a friend of mine, who I will not name, who works for a direct services progressive nonprofit. And she wanted to, quote unquote, have a word with me about my book. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to get she's going to rip me a new one like this is going to be ugly. And she said, actually, it's dysfunctional that essentially a lot of these uh, new hires coming in, they think everything is sort of like an internally focused, um, uh, trying to uh, that the, the, the battle is actually against the organization itself not for the people they're trying to help. And the there was an article by Ryan Grimm, which I urge everyone to read mm -hmm. in The Intercept. Finally, someone saying, yeah, this is really happening, and it is actually pretty destructive. Um, and, I, and I think that that's something that gives me some hope uh, you know, that that fever is breaking. I think fire, we've, and fire, believe me, like we've seen, I mean, more, our staff leans more to the left than to the right, despite, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, stereotypes. Um, we see this coming up, in, you know, as well, but we have a good inoculation against it by the fact we have, uh, there isn't as much groupthink. I think that the, that, that being a problem, I mean, you know, one of the things they quote in, in, um, in Ryan Grimm's article is Bernie Sanders saying stop hiring activists is is a pretty good sign um, that maybe uh, maybe a cultural trend has gone too far. So uh, you mentioned that you have this major campaign um, yeah. and you actually have a number on it, which is pretty big. I mean, seventy five million dollar campaign aimed at boosting and solidifying support for free speech values. And and I, I really probably do need to disclose now that you're going to be working with Longwell Partners. Yep. Longwell Partners are owned, of course, by Sarah Longwell, who is the uh, one of our colleagues here and the publisher of The Bulwark, although this is separate here. So you actually have this public relations campaign. And, and I noted this initiative includes television spots. Yep. Uh, talk to me about this. One features a a student from uh, a conservative student from Emerson College who was suspended yeah. for circulating kind of China kind of sucks stickers. Right. You know, promoting kind of sus sus, which is which is young person slang um, for the, suspect. Yeah. Uh, and it comes from it, it comes from video games. Apparently. Oh, OK. Kind of sus. OK. Promoting yeah. the idea that China was behind the pandemic. So he was suspended for yeah. this. So that's one of your spots. Yeah. I, I actually I, it wasn't about the pandemic. The response was actually to the clampdown in Hong Kong. OK. OK. So and another spot features a Montana State University student who was ordered to take down a Black Lives Matters banner from his dorm room. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, this is interesting. But also, a, a Politico wrote about your plans and noted that you are likely to face an uphill battle with people on the left who are really tired of unfettered free speech after yeah. all of Trump's misinformation. And we, yeah. speaking of difficult, you know, conversations here, this is part of the problem with so much I don't know, just toxic bullshit out there. So much, so many lies, <laughs> so much. So much. You know, so people go, okay, you know, does free speech, is free speech basically a green light for all of this garbage, all of this sewage that has done so much to destroy our democracy? In, in, in some ways, has free speech proven to be incompatible with yeah. a sound, soundly functioning democracy? I mean, that's a tough question. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's really that tough. I, I, I think that, you know, like I, I, this fifteen twenty one problem that I'm talking about, you know, is that we're in this anarchical period and there are lots of people right, left and middle who would like to put the genie back in the bottle. And it's literally impossible. Like there's no way after adding billions of people to the international discussion that it's not going to be one of the most disruptive times in, in history. So I, I don't think there's any top down way to fix this. It's easy. And when it comes to the misinformation stuff, yes, I think particularly the savvy Russian troll farms, you know, they, they were very clever in, in ways that they could, you know, attempt to manipulate public opinion. According to my friend Jakob Bishengama in his book, Free Speech, uh, the, the evidence seems to indicate that the, it was less successful than most people uh, think in yeah. terms of, you know, people believe what they already believe, it essentially is a lot of what the findings is there. But when it comes to deciding what is and is not true, that's the whole ball game. Like, like, like that's epistemology. Like, and and that's never easy. For, and uh, you know, not to I'm name dropping a ton of a ton of friends, but Jonathan Rauch mm-hmm. uh, wrote an absolutely must read book called Constitution of Liberty. Yes, where he talks about and he talks about the right and the left. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I don't think it was a, a bestseller. Is it, is it make either side like uh, right. particularly happy? But it makes the point that that figuring out and the funny thing is, it's not so much as figuring out what is true because you can almost never get there. It's figuring out what's not true. It, so, like, knowledge, for the most part, is this nonstop process of, of, of subtraction. And one of the reasons why I, I, the, I, the idea that we can sort of easily clamp down on misinformation is something that Mark Zuckerberg got, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of hate for when he said this a couple of years ago. But you don't want Facebook to be the final arbiter of truth. And, and that's, that's actually a very important thing to understand, that, that the, the way in which we uh, construct truth is by no means easy. Um, it's arduous. It requires discipline. It requires open discussion. And the idea that you can just fix, you know, misinformation by having, you know, some omniscient uh, institution from above is the way you end up in a really bad authoritarian um, uh, uh, situation. So, yeah, misinformation is a problem. But w- one of the cures to it is that that more people have authorities that they trust. And right now, people don't trust authorities very much. Uh, some of that's unfair. Some of it's the result of, of um, this 1521 problem, the idea that we're going through this major uh, major upheaval. But in some cases, some, some of these uh, experts have done this to themselves to some degree. So there, there's both rational and irrational reasons for there being an erosion of trust. What is going to happen is that eventually people are going to start saying, you know what, this organization, this person, they've ne- they're they're always doing their best to be honest, even if they're not always right. We need a new class of people that uh, even th- those across, you know, at least reasonable people across the lines of difference can all go. It's like, no, that's actually a trustworthy source because right now we're in kind of epistem- epistemic anarchy. <laughs> epistemic anarchy. All, all right. So in, 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 the, in the spirit of the difficult questions, um, sure. you are um, – tomorrow magically made the uh, president of Facebook, now known as Meta, or let's say that you become, you know, Elon Musk calls you up after we're done with this podcast and says, hey, Greg, would you like to be the new CEO of, of Twitter? And one of the decisions you have to make is uh, you, you have um, evidence of uh, Russian troll farms spreading disinformation. Yeah. Is it a violation of the culture of free speech for you to say, no, we're, we're going to block that. We're not going to allow that on either Facebook or Twitter. What do you think? I don't I don't think what so. What does Greg it, do? It, it, in that case, you know, like and I've been asked this by people at Facebook. And my answer is first, you know, try to borrow wisdom from existing First Amendment jurisprudence, not because you have to, but because it's 100 years of deep thinking about how you have freedom of speech. 
in the real world. Uh, my co-author, Jonathan Haidt, um, we definitely see like the troll farms and the bots as, as major problems. So does, so, so does Elon Musk. Um, his idea that he would get rid of the bots um, and that would help discourse, I think he's almost certainly right. And particularly when it's intentional manipulation you know, of, of um, democratic countries, that, that makes it all the more um, justifiable to get rid of them. Now, one of the most controversial recommendations that Haidt had um, that I have some reservations about, but I think it, it, uh, I think he has a good point that if you were to um, not get rid of anonymity, but require someone at some point, you know, in the process of social media to prove that they're a real person, um, and even if they have a, a, a fake name in in their account, or they or they have a name that uh, you know um, a post transition name for you know for example, they. Um, uh, that if they're real people connected to real reputations, uh, that helps address the problem with bots and with propaganda and, and with troll farms and all, and all this kind of stuff. I get nervous, of course, when you talk about lack of anonymity, because an, lack of anonymity is the most justifiable when there is very little possibility yeah. of you having your life ruined for what you say. And cancel culture makes it harder to justify that. And certainly Erdogan, Putin, Xi, people who live in other countries, they need anonymity if they want to actually say anything. But I do think that there are sort of ways to ways to address some of these problems that aren't uh, strictly t- top down. And I think that when I think that there is a possibility and this here's where I'm, here's going to where I'm going to sound like an old fashioned techno utopian. When we have billions of people in the conversation, um, at, at, at this point, Martin Gurry wrote this, uh, you know, a good book called Revolt of the Public. And the way I sort of um, summarize it is after social media became a major force in human politics, we suddenly had the tools to be able to tear down any institution, any idea or any person. And this is a mixed bag because absolutely, you know, Hosni Mubarak, you know, good riddance, um, you know, Harvey Weinstein, good riddance, you know, uh, older ideas, you know, um, there, there are a lot of ideas that needed to be torn down. But it, we haven't figured out yet a way to have these billions of voices help us build really anything yet. But I don't think we have to assume it's always going to be that way. And the idea of suddenly having billions of people in the, in the conversation, having this massive system for organized disconfirmation, I mean, that's what universities are supposed to be. They're supposed to be, like, the scientific method is supposed to be organized disconfirmation. I think that we shouldn't underestimate what potentially can be done that could be positive. Um, it seems very far off in the future now. But I do think that and this is going to sound very pie in the sky, but we could actually potentially create at least different forms of social media that could actually be a boon to even human knowledge. All right. Well, let me give you the flip side of that. Uh, sure. the, we are we also have uh, technology that creates deep fakes mm-hmm. um, that we really don't know how that's going to impact our our, totally, our, yes. our our political and cultural debate. So I understand your point about you don't want Facebook to be the ultimate arbiter of truth, but is are lies, demonstrable lies and falsehoods, are they protected free speech? They are, uh, generally. They're, protected um, by what? When it comes to the, 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 like the First Amendment, like it's, it's partially because, um, and this is also one of the ways in which sort of like the wisdom um, that's been uh, imparted, is that people get things wrong all the time, um, and s- someone might not actually even think that they're lying when they say something that's untrue. Now, within defamation law, however, as we saw in the you know, Johnny Depp case, we have a very high bar in, in New York Times versus Sullivan, that if you're a public official or a celebrity, you have to prove that someone knowingly uh, lied in a way that actually damaged you. 
Um, and but that's not considered protected speech, uh, it, even in the extremely uh, free speech protective oh. First Amendment. Now, when it comes to people who are actively trying to uh, mislead you, the hope there, you know, and particularly, uh, and it's one of the best arguments for getting rid of anonymity, is that you get to do that, you get to try that once, and nobody will ever trust you again after that. Yeah. But right now, you know, for a lot of the things that I think have us have a, uh, have us both down about the, the state of American politics, or sometimes alternatively scared to death about the state of American politics, yeah. is that we're still in this anarchical period where people don't know which sources they uh, what sources they trust. Well, you've opened up another front here, and I'm sorry we've gone long here, but oh, sure, uh, no, you know, because, because I mean, we we talked about academic freedom, we've talked about the First Amendment, we've talked about the culture of free speech, you know, in in American corporations and in in the private sector, but you raised the 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 whole uh, issue of that there is defamation law, and, and we are yep. seeing these uh, these lawsuits against you know media outlets on the right, uh, Newsmax, Fox News, from people like Dominion Voting Machines, yeah. that are basically saying, you lied about us and we're going to hold you accountable. I'm, I'm just guessing that you don't regard those as attacks on free speech. In fact, they strike me as kind of one of the safety valves of free speech, that, that if, in fact, you do engage in real misconduct, there are ways of dealing with it short of censorship but you are held yeah. accountable okay you don't yeah. you don't you don't silence them but you if you lie and it, you, if, if it is proven that you have with real malice uh, yeah. you know in knowing disregard of the of the truth and then, then you will be held accountable and that may mean that newsmax will will as jvl wrote the other day will end up being owned by dominion voting machines <laughs> yeah well this is something that like uh, like david french and i talk a fair amount about um is the uh and, and one of the reasons why we get annoyed by when people try to dismiss quote-unquote free speech absolutists because you know point point me to who exactly who you're talking to and mm -hmm. it's usually someone who doesn't know all that much about first amendment or, or, or freedom of speech because the exceptions to free speech under, under the uh, you know american understanding are um, oh, I, have some, I have some reservations about a couple of them but when it comes to things like you know racial harassment uh, to true threats to defamation, these exist for very sensible reasons, and that's one of the reasons why I think something that can really erode the faith faith in freedom of speech is when people are are threatened, you know, with physical harm or or death. Um, on Twitter or on social media in a way that actually feels like a credible threat and no, nothing is done about it. Because, you know, we, we don't just think that, um, uh, you know, intimidation in, in the sense of, you know, actual true threats um, should be protected. We actually think that those, that the people should get, be getting in trouble for that. And it's the same thing with defamation. You know, like I, I don't foresee free speech lasting very long if you had to allow for the idea that everyone's allowed to, you know, call you a pedophile, even if they know it's not, not true and ruin your career. Um, I think that's, that some of the limitations that we, that we place on freedom of speech in the American system um, are very sensible. And I think it's very smart that we use a categorical system instead of a pure balancing system because it maximizes uh, the, the um, amount of protected speech while making it very clear what the unprotected isn't. Greg Lukianoff is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And his most recent book, which he co-authored, is The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas are setting up a generation for failure working on a book on cancel culture. Greg, it is great to have you back on the podcast. Such a pleasure. And and listeners, check out the, the commercials. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a sucker for them. You know, like I could watch this kind of content all day, but it's really a moving reminder of, the, of how important free speech is to democratic society. And, and where can I find them? YouTube backslash The Fire Org. The Fire, spelled exactly the way you would think.
Yep. <laughs> the Fire Org. Foundation <laughs> for Individual Rights and Expression. The Bulwark Podcast is produced by Katie Cooper with audio production by Jonathan Siri. I'm Charlie Sykes. Thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. And we'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.